Well, hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another edition of the latest Shiny podcast. This is your, ho- ho- ah, this is your host, Steven Spector. With me, as usual, as you would expect, is Rob Hirschfeld. Uh, good afternoon, Rob. Hello, Steven. Well, Rob, I don't think I could do this one uh, without you because I have a strong suspicion we're going to go super techie today, which uh, if you're listeners, I hope you really enjoy, but I just have that suspicion that's where we're going. <laughs> We'll we'll put Eric through the ringer and see, we'll see what happens. Eric. So we have a we have a new guest, someone that um, I haven't met before. So again, continuing to search out new guests for our listeners, we're really excited. We have Eric Farage, or I've said it close, Farage. I'm not sure, Eric, but it's close enough. And he's uh, the CTO of Root Level uh, Technology. Eric, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate the time. Great. And uh, before I uh, murder other people's names and everyone gets mad, I'll. I'll I'll be a little bit more quiet, but if you can just give us a quick uh, overview uh, about uh, the company where you work a little bit about yourself, and then we can start jumping in and talking about uh, some interesting technology. Sure. Uh, Root Level Technology is a a cloud enablement uh, professional service organization specializing around uh, enabling uh, large enterprises adopt uh, cloud native uh, workloads uh, through progressive uh, implementation patterns like uh, infrastructure as code, pipeline as code, uh, some really high-end emerging data science practices uh, with machine learning and artificial intelligence. Uh, so we really kind of bridge the gap on uh, pretty much all of all the emerging technologies uh, that uh, companies are trying to leverage inside the public cloud space. Wow! So a real digital transformation. Uh practice, consulting, consultancy from that perspective? Uh, yeah, more towards the uh, latter half of the transformation side. We don't do the, uh, the upfront uh, digital transformation in terms of getting companies buy-in on um, n- needing to make the change of uh, uh, what I would consider uh, a digital-first uh, software company for a- any company that we touch. Um, so right. we... We, we really uh, come in into the uh, kind of the space where the wrenches need to be turned and expertise needs to be uh, had. That sounds awesome, which makes sense. And so from that perspective, I'm assuming Kubernetes, you'd mentioned HashiCorp tools. Is there, is there sort of a suite of, of, of tools that you see people using specifically or is it more, I need to understand, you know, I'm trying to build cloud native infrastructure or tools or processes and, and you're going to use what the customers are comfortable with? Well, it's really interesting right now because uh, you're seeing this uh, plethora of uh, larger enterprises uh, come from the more data center-centric uh, delivery of their applications and really looking at like when they're going to like GCP or AWS being like, how how do we do this? What are the right tools to use? Questions like that, and uh, we we really we we really operate off of uh, the cloud native uh, compute foundation uh, principles and tooling uh, that are, that are really being proliferated uh, around what to use, how to use it, and really kind of standardizing on that. So you're seeing we're seeing a lot of usage of Prometheus for monitoring and. Uh, observability, uh, leveraging Istio at a, in a heavy uh, capacity for uh, service mesh and integration with Kubernetes. Uh, obviously, we're a big Kubernetes shop, uh, but then kind of comes down to the whole like 
putting the glue together for everything and uh, leveraging uh, tools like Spinnaker uh, for uh, deployment automation for continuous delivery and uh, really kind of looking at the next generation of uh, how you do continuous integration. So is Jenkins the thing, is still the tool that you want to use or do you want to use something different like cloud build or something to that, that effect that is uh, basically a quote unquote serverless uh, CI tool. Yeah, we, we do a lot of uh, kind of uh, retrofitting of uh, people, companies, uh, technology practices and processes. A lot of what you're describing are, are these, you know, open source, cloud native tools. They're, they're ways in which people are using, not using the service providers tools as much. Or, you know, I know that all the service providers have offerings around Kubernetes, but what you just described is, a, is more of a cloud neutral suite. How do, yep. you, do you, how do you help people make that balancing decision? And do they have to? Uh, I mean, I'm a huge proponent of a, of a multi-cloud uh, approach to uh, embracing public cloud. So whether you're using AWS, GCP, Alibaba Cloud, uh, you should really try to to look at it uh, from an agnostic point of view of of making sure that when you want to pick up and move your workload based on price or availability or just company policies, uh, you have the ability to do that. Um, Kubernetes is interesting in the way where you can leverage EKS and GKA together and uh, and stretch those clusters across uh, providers uh, leveraging Istio, for example. Uh, so you can leverage the managed uh, compute workloads and uh, kind of bolt on add-ons that you would get from uh, a service offering like EKS and GKE versus rolling your own Kubernetes cluster with like cops or something. So your your thinking is that it you can mix and match. So I'd be able to take an Istio deployment, roll it into a service provider's uh, Kubernetes offering, or do I need to take everything the service provider offers to to get advantage of something like Istio? Uh, you can you can leverage uh, the service provider's managed offering and stretch it across another uh, service providers manager managed offering and still be able to operate in the manner that you're expecting to do. Wow, that strikes me as as complex. So, I, I, you know, one of the things I know you, I know you need to be able to do is manage the complexity of these offerings as you as you build them. Yep. Where do you see the trade offs for that? The trade offs is uh, kind of what I what I like to coin uh, the term of uh, time to production. So everything is about iteration cycles and iteration time. So uh, the ability to uh, crush the timeline of creating a new service and getting into production and evaluating, uh, does it answer the questions that the business needs answered, uh, is probably the most important uh, key activity that uh, any of the developers are really doing these days of answering the question, is this code the right code? or the right feature uh, to put in play today for the business to answer this question. So it, it definitely enables that. So you, you look at more of a developer-centric uh, delivery work, uh, uh, process versus more of the operational complexity uh, uh, viewpoint. So when you're looking at these these applications, I'm assuming some is is you building, some is is you working with your customer. Do they do they bring their own developers and engineers to this? Of course, 
Yeah. So a lot of a lot of what we do is uh, really kind of take that existing application and bring it into a cloud uh, a cloud native uh, ecosystem. Uh, sometimes it's it's a twelve factor app and it makes it really easy to do that. Uh, sometimes you have that huge legacy uh, application that still needs to be like ripped apart and uh, the separation of concerns still needs to happen. And that's when uh, these these conversations get a little uh, more complex where you have to carve out development uh, pipelines in terms of you need to start carving this this portion of the application and that portion of the application. And we can start uh, kind of strangling out those uh, microservices, if you want to call it that, uh, to uh, to start getting them in a more cloud native uh, position. Boy, I, there's something I want to drill into. It's not as deep tech, but it, it strikes me as as really important. Is you're you're describing business needs, driving architectural decisions and microservices, and then Istio. I'm assuming is an important component of of allowing you to create the microservices distribution. Yep. Yeah. It, it, it's a really interesting uh, concept, but yes. So, so I mean, you're deeply embedded in the in making the business in helping match the business drivers back into the architecture. Is that unique to cloud native, where all of a sudden the the business structure is tied into the architectural decisions? Um, I think it's just a little uh, unique to uh, how root level tech uh, just kind of operates. Uh, so all the engineers that I've staffed underneath my uh, professional services team, uh, we all came from uh, large enterprise production, like engineering teams. So we're solving, we've been solving uh, business problems uh, our entire career. And instead of being PowerPoint consultants, we're actually uh, true production level consultants that help drive the business forward. From that perspective, so you're you're gonna you're you know the project's sort of underway. You're coming in to to augment and bring in expertise and train. What are the warning signs you're gonna look for in uh you know what, I want to hear about the cloud native train wreck just as much <laughs> as the cloud native success. What are the warning signs people should watch out for? Uh, the train wrecks uh, pretty much always happen. I will tell you that right now. Uh, every every engagement that we we engage in, uh, you're going to have a degree of that um, just because it's the nature of uh, kind of the transition uh, that uh, companies will make. Um, the best thing to kind of kind of look out for is uh, when you start saying, I want to be cloud native, I want to do everything as code, uh, you're, you need to look at the people that you're, that you're employing. Uh, do they actually have the the capacity or knowledge or wherewithal to actually go through and do all this work. Because uh, it's not a small effort to make these uh, transitions. Right. Well, that makes sense. And then infrastructure as code also requires you, you know, you have to build the, the tooling and then you have to maintain the tooling and have the, the practices that go with it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, it, it, it's a really interesting uh, paradigm shift uh, from most uh operations teams to make um even if they're operating in a in a devops capacity uh making the transition to like a full infrastructure as code um it it, it requires a lot and it requires a lot of uh development uh 
maturity around how you're going to manage and like manage the life cycles of the assets that you're building uh, with your code. That makes a lot of sense. Do you do you think cloud native DevOps is different? Right? Is there is there a different approach from a DevOps perspective when you look at cloud native tooling? The only big difference is is a lot of these tools are very very new and the change rate on the tooling itself is it's, there's a lot of thrashing on the tooling. Uh, so the documentation is sometimes not super clear. Uh, so you have to be willing to dig into Go code or uh, Rust code or whatever language the developer decided to pick to write the tool, which tends to be everything and anything. <laughs> so, well, that that was one of the, one of the things that, that struck me, right? Because you know, you you highlight Istio as a as a part of the tool set, and Istio is pretty raw. I mean, yep. frankly, it's, it's it's an important function for what people do. We haven't we haven't even you know we're we're assuming the readers are advanced enough to know what Istio does. If not, listen to the Cloudcaster queue. <laughs> uh, they they do some good good. What is Istio um, or, or uh, Podcuddle? They they have some sessions on just that. How, how do you help somebody deal with that, that level of rawness on the tech? Yeah, uh, it's a lot of uh, building guardrails for them uh, through tooling and okay. automation uh, and a lot of education. Uh, we work pretty hand-in-hand -hand, uh, with uh, Google and the SDO team itself. Uh, so we we, we just kind of have a, a tighter bond uh, to some of this tooling uh, than most people do. So uh, you, you kind of get to flesh out some of the raw, rawness and uh, if you run into these edge cases, we're not afraid to kind of roll up your sleeves and uh, get into the code and fork the repo and pull request into it. And uh, it, that's that's a lot of what's going on uh, within the cloud native community as a whole, where it's not just like one company driving uh, the success of these this tooling. You have an entire community uh, of adopters that are driving the success of it. That makes a lot of sense. And and the expertise while you're, you know, I, I think there's a balance. You, you did a nice job at the beginning talking about companies want to move quickly and adopt cloud native. Something like a Istio service mesh is essential to, to scaling the technology. Um, I think we realize that pretty quickly and it is raw. Mm -hmm. um, what do you, and, and besides having a great partner, is there, are there things that people can do as they build their applications or think about cloud native that, creates an insurance policy there? My two cents around it is give it a go. Give it a try on a very like low-impacting service and really kind of exercise the wants that you're, that you're looking for from a cloud-native platform, uh, like making sure that you leverage uh, inline distributed tracing uh, through like Jaeger and OpenTracing.io. That's like baked right into the Istio service mesh and uh, you you can potentially get away from your your multi-million dollar app, app dynamics license or your new relic license and have something completely open source in the APM realm uh, to help enable and uh, support your applications and your microservice uh, ecosystem. 
So when people look at these tools, I mean, there's a degree where they're these these the last generation of tooling definitely helped people, you know, sort of have us, you know, have some manual touch, some some degree of control. Mm-hmm. It, it feels to me like what you're describing about is sell is is apple is what you're describing is applications that do a lot of that work for you. Yep. Um, how do you how do you Give people the visibility and control that they're used to. How do you help cut the cord? It's really hard. It, it really is. Um, sometimes it's a little bit of a, a leap of faith uh, for some uh, application owners of uh, really kind of taking taking some of the, the the normal use cases of like being able to SSH into a VM, for example, or uh, leveraging uh, some of, some of the the legacy kind of application architectures with load balancers and stuff like that. Uh, it, it's a big, it's a big change and it's a big learning curve. And uh, the people that we've seen successfully adopted are people that are very eager to learn new technology and embrace new technology. Uh, the people that struggle with it are obviously the ones that don't. Yeah. <laughs> um, it- but I mean, from that perspective, what you're you're handing somebody a much more automated solution. Their you know their infrastructure. Actually, instead of putting words in your mouth, how do you how do you sell you know the, these capabilities? What what benefits are they showing? I mean, it 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 kind of goes back to the old the old maxim of like uh, let the business focus on what the business is supposed to focus on. So whatever widget they're trying to sell, let them focus on building that widget versus how to figure out how to route application traffic. I mean, it's the, that's the easiest sell. Uh, and it's the easiest way, way to go back to a customer and provide that value. Right. But I mean, you're talking about enterprise I and mean, you're, you're focused on enterprise, enterprise customers mm-hmm. who have some type of business or some type of work they're trying to do. They're, they're right, it's the core of their business and they're, they're moving it into cloud native mm-hmm. because they think they're going to get more agility they think you know what what what's what's their trigger nine times out of ten is uh their their developers can't get net new application or net new service code uh into production in a timely fashion and when they do get when they do get that new feature in production generally it's too late or way over budget so this is this is really cloud native is really a reflection of you know, incremental pipeline development process, you know, coming, coming back into the enterprise. Is that a fair? Yeah. I, I, I would, or is there more to it? I would say that's kind of the, yeah. the kind of the foundational uh, elements of it. Um, and I wouldn't say the, the enterprises are the biggest adopters of like a cloud native uh, stance. Um, a lot of people are, a lot of the enterprises are fine with the whole lift and shift model. Uh, which we do a fair amount of that work, but it's not like the the fun, like entertaining work to talk about uh, because everyone can go in, sure. map some VMs, push a button, and call it a day. Um, but when you when you when you have a company that is ready to embrace uh, going to the next level and really adopting that, that's when you starting you're starting to see the companies really like look at a cloud native uh operating model okay so that makes sense so you're you're really it's lift and shift has always made me nervous because you're not really improving the application this you're you're talking about taking this to the next level 
um, and and building into it. So, Eric, we're, you know, we're, we're we're back up, sort of talking high level. Um, what I what I would like to do is, you know, see if we can wind into some specifics um, on the tech space and, and where things are going. One of the things that that I've been curious about in the sort of the Kubernetes and containerized space is, are there serverless alternatives showing up out of out of the, those communities rather than having to rely on the what the service providers are writing, like Lambda? Sure. Yeah, I mean, you you have uh, what is it, Knative and OpenWhisk and Fission mm-hmm. uh, are kind of the main like Kubernetes serverless function functions as a service uh, solutions out there. But are are they seeing traction? Because I I I guess I was watching the KubeCon streams and Knative a, a tiny bit, the other ones barely. Um, you know, there's not a lot of event sources yet. That, that was Amazon's big claim to fame is how many event sources that they've built into the system at this yep. point. I, you know, how how are how are you helping people understand serverless and take advantage of it? And then are you able to make that multi multi cloud? Yeah. So I mean, it, it's interesting. Uh, we really haven't seen a lot of uh, traction on the whole serverless uh, ecosystem. Uh, really at all. I mean, you you have people kind of dipping their toes into it here and there, and then you have the people that kind of go whole hog serverless function everything. And and I mean, it's usually one extreme or the other. And usually when you see someone kind of take the the extreme of uh, functions for everything, uh, they picked a vendor and went with it. With serverless, right, if if the vendors have more specific implementations. How how do you pick a serverless platform, or do you just say, look, if you're already building cloud native stuff, serverless is not adding as much value. Just don't worry about it yet. What's what's your thinking? The people that or the companies that I see really adopting like a heavy serverless footprint, um, they're doing it with the uh, kind of the assumption of going to that. Uh, kind of mythical no ops uh, operating model where they where they don't think they need to yeah. employ an operations team. Um, the thing that I see in the ecosystem is uh, the maturity level around kind of the tooling. Um, sure, you have some pretty amazing frameworks with like the serverless framework, um, but when it comes to actually uh, managing all your functions and uh, really kind of like operating it at scale, you don't really have a whole lot of like telemetry or observ- observability uh, options out there, except for like IO pipe and like the native uh, like metrics with like Stackdriver and uh, CloudWatch. Yeah, I, it seems to me that people underestimate how much operational work they do need to do with a serverless technology. Um, And, and because, you know, when you described what you're helping people do with containers and Kubernetes, it's pipelines and CI CD and test and, uh, you know, performance management and APM. And there's, there's a lot of stuff that you need to make uh, option, something production Mm -hmm. ready. Um, And you still have to do that with serverless. I, I don't think there's a freebie 
just because it's serverless about from all of those other concerns, yeah, right? It, it's, it's really crazy. Uh, I mean, I think it, don't get me wrong. I think it's a, I think it's a great, uh, innovation. I think it's a great, uh, great way to really kind of look at, uh, modernizing some of your application stack. Um, but it, from putting it in production and putting it through, uh, true, like operational efficiency and being able to actually understand what's going on, all the same caveats that you have around managing containers and VMs is still there. Um, but you also have that kind of added complexity of like, okay, how fast is this function going to actually start? Um, is my app weight in my JVM too heavy to, to service the, the actual invocations of this function constantly? I mean, it, it just adds an entirely different dynamic of thinking about handling your production traffic at scale. It strikes me that, you know, one of the things that people need to be aware of with the service mesh is that you're directing traffic, you know where things are going, you can make a whole bunch of decisions and tuning. And, but I, I don't know that that's as obvious with a serverless infrastructure. Have you seen something that would give you that, that type of sort of rollout control from a serverless perspective? Honestly, I haven't. Um... I mean, okay. I've been, I've kind of looked here and there for it. Um, I haven't put a lot of time and effort behind it, uh, to be honest. Okay. I mean, I've I've played. We we use Lambda Rack N, um, so API Gateway and Lambda and Dynamo and the sort of the, the air quotes classic yeah. stack. Um, and while you can do those things, it's it's a it's a combination of services. Yep. Um, so it it sounds to me like you know putting a service mesh in front of your containerized application gives you some more control. Yeah, we've we've experienced uh, a lot of a lot of uh, ability to make real time decisions uh, in production and redirect traffic globally with some of these service mesh implementations. It's it's been really amazing uh, to really kind of dig into that. Wow, that's strikes me that service mesh is the the real. The real value in in some of these containerized applications, not just scheduling containers, it's the way you're describing. Yeah, it. I mean, scheduling containers have been done for years. I mean, it's not just Kubernetes and Mesos. I mean, if you look at what uh, Solaris zones have been doing container scheduling yeah. forever. Fair enough, right? Going back to the joint joint popularized yep. a lot of that stuff uh, as a service yep. provider. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's, I mean, we're back to load balancers, directing traffic, under, you know, shaping traffic. Those are the those are the things that you need to do to scale mm -hmm. an application. Um, and those are things that it sounds like you need help. You know, people need help with. They're not they're not skills you wake up with one morning um, read a, read a book about. Those are those are battle scar type. Yeah, type problems. and I mean the the whole transition from the traditional F five hardware load balancers to some of these service meshes with service discovery. It's a complete mind shift on looking at that stuff. That makes a lot of sense. Is there a place where, you know, somebody can start dipping their toe in? I mean, granted, they, you know, they should call you and, <laughs> and get help. But a lot of times I, I know it, that people want to sort of get a feel for how this stuff is working. Um, 
build some competence is how do you how does somebody start with the idea of a service mesh? You know, can you build a two container service mesh? I mean, you can, but you don't really get to enjoy uh, actually working through the actual idiosyncrasies of what you're going to have to deal with in production. Um, there's some really there's some really great like uh, sample uh, like twenty service microservice uh, uh, applications out there. Uh, that that we leverage as kind of a, a way to do some POC tooling uh, around some of our testing and implementation, and it's it, it that's probably the best way to do it because uh, when you have five plus services that you have to keep track of, uh, you have to really you, you really have to take it as okay. I need to look at this from a high level to a single service level uh, as well as uh, the dependency mapping around uh, some of these services. Uh, and then if you just pump traffic through, uh, that's where you can kind of really kind of play around and uh, really figure out how to how to make these uh, environments and architectures really kind of sing. I, this, this to me, you're, you're really reinforcing something that to me has has been, I wouldn't say obvious, but in the back of my mind, People need to think about when they're building cloud native ar architectures and when they're, they're, especially as they're going to service mesh, you need service mesh and you need to be able to say, you know, this is not going to be trivial stuff to set up. You have to really understand what you're building and how you're building it down to yep. the business level. Um, and I think that's an important takeaway for people uh, to understand because, right, I, I, when I look at industry, it's, you know, Kubernetes is this bright, shiny, you know, everybody has to move to Kubernetes and containers. Feels like they're going to move to that, and then suddenly wake up and say, "I need service mesh." And service mesh is a lot more complex. Yeah, and retrofitting that into your environment's not exactly the uh, the funnest uh, activity to do. Um, but I mean, the 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 interesting thing is, is uh, we were all around uh, the day when we all woke up and it's like, okay, everything's in VMware. If you're not doing any, if you don't know VMware go learn it now. I think you're starting to see that same kind of transition towards uh, Kubernetes. Uh, I don't think we've we've hit that uh, you woke up tomorrow and it's like you have to do it, um, but it's getting there, that's for sure. I, I've definitely been guilty of being in a conference where I've said, you know, if you're in this room and you don't know what containers are, you know, go, go, go get a book, figure that out, yep. come back. Because um, containerizing, containerizing workloads is, is really such a value. You, you know, we shouldn't have to have that discussion at this point. Even if you put the containers in VMs, um, it, it's definitely a, sort of a required step one to me at this point, yep. even for legacy. Um, and, and it's interesting because I feel like for this, this conversation, you know, you and I, you know, there's a lot of land to discuss. There's a lot of cool things. Um, I'm really impressed with how much we sort of came back to uh, the networking layer of of solving cloud native applications as ones that people need to mm -hmm. pay attention to um, and are going to need some help to accomplish. As a last sort of a last thought, is there another area that we we should have been talking about? We talked, you know, service mesh. We've talked serverless a little bit. There's some other areas that are that are 
still developing and challenging yeah, I, for cloud I native? I think the biggest, uh, well, not the biggest, but one of the bigger areas where uh, there's a lot of emphasis on it right now is just uh, uh, the orchestration of building uh, cloud assets. So your 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 infrastructure, your DNS records, all that stuff. Uh, I mean, obviously, right now uh, Terraform is kind of the uh, de facto winner there. Uh, but anyone that has worked with Terraform in real life and in in a production capacity know knows that there's a lot lot more to be had with it and you're writing abstraction tooling to make it work in the manner you need it to um but that's going to be somewhere where i think 2019 there's going to be a lot of a lot of churn in that space and i think there's going to be a lot of innovation in that space as well makes sense that's a that was a not where i expected you to go i think that's a really interesting one um yeah, we've we've had some some experience with Terraform, and it, there's some interesting. Does a lot of stuff, and it it also has some challenges to it. We could do a whole <laughs> show on Terraform. Maybe Stephen, maybe maybe we need to. Actually, I think we did one. Doctor Nick, right? We did. We had the we had. Yeah, we had hash the HashiCorp guy out of London do a whole show about Terraform. People should go back and listen to that, and and I I think one of my takeaways here is that there is no silver bullet. To solve problems, you you gotta dig in, learn. You know, one thing turns yeah. up another thing. So cool. Well, hey, Robin, Eric, this was really good. And Eric, uh, appreciate you joining us. Uh, if people are interested in you know reaching out to you, learning more about the, your company, things like that. Where should they go? Yeah, if they just hit our uh, website, uh, leveltech.com, uh, you can definitely hit us up there. Um, you can also just kind of uh, hit us up in social media, obviously, LinkedIn, Twitter. Uh, we're present in both of those areas. Um, if you need uh, kind of information around uh, our services, uh, you can leverage the, the old maxim sales at rootleveltech.com email address, and you can get one of our guys uh, on the phone within minutes. Uh, we're pretty pretty responsive. so. Well, great. Well, thanks to uh, both of you. And uh, Eric, um, we will uh, reach back to you maybe six months or so. Or if you come across anything uh, really interesting as you uh, learn more and expand, you know, do reach out to myself and Rob. We'd love to have you on as a guest again. And it's good to have uh, customers, Rob, that use this stuff, not just the inventors on the podcast. I, I, I really appreciate Eric talking about what, what, how the sausage gets made for people working together as a community. That's a big insight. Yeah, it's really good. Well, thanks to both of you, and uh, we'll talk again soon.